Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to the Out of Spec podcast. I'm here with Jordan. Love having you on. How are you doing, Jordan? Great, Francie. How are you? Good to be back. I'm, yeah, good to have you back. Um, I'm excited to talk to you today, but I'm doing well. How's Colorado? Oh, lovely, beautiful, cool weather. Snow is hitting the mountains a bit, so we are officially sliding into pumpkin spice blankets and uh, autumn movie season. So I love and, uh, it. Time, good times to have a heat pump in your car. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, the the warmed steering wheel that would that was really nice when I I've gotten to drive cars with that. It's a nice touch. Yeah, but it's it's beautiful. I can look over the plain and see the um, windmills of NREL, the National Renewal, Renewable Energy Laboratory. Do you know anything mm, about that? That is funny <laughs> that you mention it because today I want to talk to you about a study by NREL that was done earlier this year in June of 2023, actually. And if you haven't heard of NREL, y'all, and you don't really know what we're talking about, um, this is the, like Jordan said, National Renewable Energy Laboratory. It's based in Boulder, Colorado, around around there. And they do, I mean, incredible research in the world of renewable energies, of course, but innovative technologies. And they, uh, as we'll talk about today, do a lot of collaborations with organizations and institutions in our government, federal and local state governments, to do research that can really enhance the way that we're going about enacting new technology and energy resources into our society. So specifically, um, yeah, if you haven't heard of them, definitely look into them. And I want to talk about NREL and their research in terms of EV infrastructure and basically the EV evolution. And of course, that touches on renewable energy a bit, but also they've been a leader in the space. They've informed a lot of uh, decision makings as well. And they have state-of-the-art analytical tools, and they've been doing that for over a decade. So they have a really great track record in this space. And I don't know if you heard of this study that I want to talk about today, but it is called the 2030 National Charging Network 
colon, estimating U.S. light duty demand for electric vehicle charging infrastructure. A little bit about NREL. Um, I've, I've seen their locations a lot. I actually have done a lot of car photography right next to their location just because it is a stunning vista of the mountains. Um, but I don't know much about this study other than I'm intrigued because this year 2030 is kind of a buzz year, if you will, of the EV world. It's like so many different companies and government institutions are having this year as a goal to be like, oh, we'll have fully battery electric vehicles by this year, or this is that by this year, we want to have this percentage of electrification or charging networks. And so I think this is a really just knowing not much at all, um, which I'm intrigued to learn about, um, this is a really important study because this is a lot of people's question is, okay, so if we have all these EVs literally exploding onto the world that is the driving realm that we live in, how do you support the charging needs? Because they're not just the swing by a gas station and keep going type of thing. They typically, EVs have less range than a gas vehicle um, when you're looking at just you know, range per tank, and also more requirements as far as time to charge, and also the, um, I guess, the energy consumption on the grid itself, like how is the grid going to handle this? So I'm really thrilled to see laboratories like NREL taking this on. I also wonder who else is working on these types of things. So it'd be a great thing to keep studying throughout further episodes in the future. I agree. Yeah, I think highlighting this research I think the, the research behind all of these great solutions to the problems we have at hand are are really interesting to look into to see kind of who is um, researching, but also like educating general, like whether it's the government or states on what they can do to kind of prepare for this EV evolution is interesting. And then, of course, seeing who takes it and how they run with it. So I am a research lover and like you were saying, you know, there's obviously the question of the grid as well and how the grid is going to uh, manage this new demand that's going to come from EVs. And while this study doesn't go there, I do hope that we can go there in other episodes and really address that. So just by the way, audience, if you're looking for a solution to the grid problem, we don't have it here, but we're going to look into it. And so this study was a joint effort with the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation and the U.S. Department of Energy's Vehicle Technologies Office, which is quite the mouthful. And the researchers worked with these two groups to estimate the number, the type, and the location of the EV chargers that are needed to create you know, a comprehensive EV charging infrastructure that can support, and they've landed on this range, 30 to 42 million EVs on the road by 2030, which again is this buzz year. A lot of automakers are saying that they're going fully electric by then or that a large percentage of their EVs will be, uh, or that their cars will be EVs by then, they're newly sold cars. And then also there's a lot of government uh, push to say all new sales have to be this percent EV by this year. So this is the whole study is in an effort not only to predict what we need, but provide evidence-supported recommendations to how the infrastructure should be built according to their findings. And for some context on the joint partnership with these three entities, the joint office that I mentioned works with all 50 states plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico to assist when they are developing their large and small scale state and local community level plans for EV charging infrastructure. So there's a lot of involvement. And luckily, you know, it's not just um, it's going off of data, which and the data and details that are in this research are very, uh, very 
intense. I mean, there's a lot of them. So this is kind of what the study looks like. It's got 81 pages and we obviously are not going to leaf through 81 pages, but if you are interested, this is, you know, available online, but we're going to go over kind of the, the main findings, the methods of the research, kind of what questions they were answering, what questions we think are left and kind of let Jordan receive this information and be curious about it as I tell him what I found. How does that sound, Jordan? Sounds great. Let's jump right in. Okay, so off the bat, um, where do they get this 30 to 42 million EVs on the road number? Like, you know, that's that's an estimate, right? So they base this figure off of the government initiatives that we've, we've mentioned that pushing for EVs on the road, the automakers plans to go fully or some large percentage of EV by a certain year, 2030 to 2040, and also the public demand for EVs. And as of February of this year, so there's likely a good few more on the road now, but the White House estimated that there are more than 3 million EVs on the road, and that is a 22% increase from 2022 to 2023. Additionally, the state of public chargers now at the time in February was 130,000 public chargers across the country. So that's just to add some perspective of where we stand right now, especially as we start diving into the details of, uh, you know, what what they have found here and what they've reported on. So like I said, I love research studies. So before we dive into the details, I did want to briefly mention the tools and the methods that these researchers used in order to create this data, their models, and report their findings. So they reference that they use tools called EVI or EVI, as I'm going to call it. So EVI Pro, EVI Road Trip, and EVI On Demand. And these were used to estimate or project typical daily demands of EV charging, the number of and locations of chargers needed for long distance travel and charging infrastructure needed also for rideshare EV fleets as well, because not only is there gonna be a large uptake through the individual person, but also EV fleets are going to be, or fleets are going to be changing over to EV. And they also use this TEMPO model, which stands for Transportation Energy Mobility Pathway Options to project the individual and fleet EV adoption and evolution over time. So there's a lot of projection happening, which you know they say, of course, Course, this is subject to the information we have when we did the study and we'll see what happens. But I think they, just the fact that they included so much data and a lot of intense modeling that this is a good idea to go off of. Yeah. So the data is fascinating and very important. Um, well, just in general, data is important. I mean, we, we try to track all the data for you know our range tests, our charging tests, um, partially just to see how all the cars in the landscape currently compare to each other. But it's really cool to have that history of data to see how far we've progressed year by year or even within the manufacturers. And um, here at Out of Spec, we're doing a lot of work with trying to get that data into more readable methods, which is coming you know, along to our website and things. So I'm excited about that future on that side. On this side, um, the data is interesting because I guess to paint a picture for our viewers, um, 3 million EVs on the road sounds like a lot. On the other hand, that's about 1% of the cars in the U.S. being EV. Like, we have over 250 million cars on the roads. Uh, well, maybe not on the roads. Some of them are probably project cars in the garage and in parking lots most of the time. But there's, on one hand, a lot of EVs. On the other hand, not that many. So you're working with this really small overall percentage, even though it is a increase from sales from last year. Um, the current sales of EVs makes up about 5% of new cars. So that's more than 1%, but still a small amount. So the data we're working with is limited in history. We haven't had EVs for much more than a decade. And even then they've only really exploded in the last five years or so. Um, 
So with that data, it is limited to what we can really do. So at first I was like, how in the world are they getting this 30 to 42 million range? That is such a weird, almost random, widespread range. Uh, it's not very precise. On the other hand, they can't really be that precise because we don't have that much data we're working with or that much history. As the years progress, I would love to see these calculations redone basically on a yearly basis, which I'm sure they'll do because most data scientists have to do that, um, or even you know more granular than that, like maybe monthly or quarterly, just to see how they see this um, adjustments happening. So it's cool to see they're taking data from so many different environments because I think you need a variety of data. And so this, I guess to kind of paint a metaphor before you continue is this feels like a weather prediction where on one hand you can predict the weather and usually decently well, but you can also be completely wrong because the weather changed all of a sudden and your data is just useless. So it is hard to really predict the storm, but we're going to try to weather the storm. And so <laughs> the metaphor is just perfect because the NREL typically works with a lot of environments such as the weather, a lot of monitoring the weather, and they have to in order to you know maintain the energy stuff that they do with like wind turbines and all that. So I, yeah, it, I'm fascinated genuinely, and I'm hoping to see a lot more studies like this and hoping we can you know cover more because there's there's so many details like you said we can't go through 81 pages of this plus the other things we're referencing uh if you want us to <laughs> maybe we could start another podcast that's just infinitely boring us reading all day but uh for this <laughs> continue <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point about, um, you know, like taking these models because they have made models and reapplying them as we get real time information, which you're right, is a pretty typical practice in terms of any kind of data modeling. So it will be interesting. At least they have this. And I think their first study was back in it was in a 20, either 13 or 17. I can't remember when they first did this. And it has obviously changed since. So to reiterate on this is, of course, a great idea. And the details that you're considering um, that they've considered. Yeah. So they didn't take it surface level. They didn't do kind of just an average approach here. They really uh, dove in and included differences in weather, housing situations, uh, the way people travel, their charging preferences. And they really have been able to get a zoomed in and region specific analysis as well. And that info is publicly available so that cities and states can use it, which is super cool. So you can really take these findings and they've already kind of applied it to your region. If if you're like, you know, a city planner or whatever kind of person who's enacting this. And another uh, assumption that they've made, you talked about, you know, this big range, right? 30 to 42. So they did do uh, uh, three different scenarios. So low to mid to high adoption scenarios. And we'll kind of, you know, even though, so you see they didn't do an average, but we might stick to kind of they they looked a lot they looked at every scenario from low medium to high but the medium is kind of the you know right in the middle and that is the 33 million EVs on the road by 2030 so they have this big range but they're considering different scenarios that yeah it's either a lot higher a lot lower or maybe right down the middle of what we would assume would happen yeah for sure um so what like what are the questions they're trying to answer that would lead to the answers they found very good question um so the real life so they referenced a lot of things and a lot of questions, right? Their overall question was, how are we going to match this kind of EV adoption in the public and private world? And 
They also looked at like, what is the real life scenario or, or, or the behavior of people in the US that are using light duty EVs to travel, the energy needs of that travel, and then how those needs have to be met. And they also said that they looked at location data, like I said. So like how will EV adoption, and I thought this was interesting, how will EV adoption in nearby or neighboring bordering states impact the demand in other states, especially along highway corridors? And then what are the difference differences between out-of-state demand and then the demand in my area. So really looking at not only, you know, let's just look within the borders, but if something's happening in a neighboring state and typical travel happens, you know, through the state or to the state, you know, imagine from Colorado to Utah or California to anywhere, um, obviously a lots of states, but you can imagine that, okay, this is a holistic um, approach as well. We can look at it at the small community level, but state it's like you can't really zoom in on the data. Of course, it's good to like build it up, but there are so many layers that have to be considered. So I thought that was interesting um, because it does ripple out, these effects ripple out. And so those are some of the questions that they were asking along the way. And I know I've talked about kind of how the study has come along, the methods that they used to approach it and the questions that they were asking. So now let's go to the findings and see what you think about these. So the researchers broke it down into this tree and roots model, which I will share on the screen. If you are tuning in online, you can see it. And so this is kind of this um, imagery that you can see where it has a tree and its roots. And so they refer to like the branches with all the leaves and then the trunk and then the roots below. And they all symbolize something in terms of their findings. So like I said, the researchers broke it down and it's because like some things are like behind the fence and some things are above ground where the public uses it. So in terms of the public destination charging that they are calling this level two charging, which is for high density neighborhoods, offices and retail outlets. So not that fast charging, but still public charging that is necessary, just not as, you know, vibrantly fast. They're estimating that there's a requirement of 1 million and 67,000 ports, which would be 9% of the national investment. And then if you move into the public fast charging, which they've symbolized as the trunk, um, this is located in communities and corridors and to support EV fleets that need to get charged and then get out on the road, as well as long distance travel and folks who don't have that at home charging. So maybe only charge fast when they're at the grocery store. So they estimate a need of 182,000 ports, which would be 39% of the national investment. So these are interesting um, percentages and numbers, I think. And then finally, the private charging for single and family and multiple family unit housing and workplace charging. They're estimating a whopping 26,762,000 ports, which would be 52% of the national investment. So just looking at those numbers, are you surprised by any of them? Um, I guess not really. It's interesting to see, you know, the breakdown of na the national investment versus the actual number of plugs or ports. And I guess, yeah, so to break it down, it's about uh, a million public level two charging. That's how we can view that, uh, which I think are really important. Public destination charging is really critical because that's when some people who can't do their private charging, they can rely on that. And it's also just a, a, a um, useful use of time, uh, efficient use of time, I guess I should say. Because if you are just at the mall, instead of your car sitting there doing nothing, you could uh, be charging your car a little bit, um, especially if you're on a road trip and you're like, well, I have to stop here anyways. Um, I don't really need to fast charge to get to full. I could just add a little bit of range. 
I think it's really kind of brilliant. Um, so yeah, about a million level two, and then less than a fifth of that number being DC fast charging, which is not huge if you look at the entire graphs. For those of you who, who can't see, it's uh, well, you should just get on the on the video and watch it um, because <laughs> this this graph is pretty wild of just how many ports it's 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 showing uh, compared to like DC fast charging versus public. So you know, less than a, less than two hundred thousand DC fast charging ports, which doesn't sound like a ton. Obviously, that's a number that could skyrocket if we find out that more and more people need it. But I don't think that many people need it. I mean, when you look at the percentage of Americans who are actually road tripping or doing long distances compared to the ones who just live in the city and do city commuting, it's a very small percentage overall. So that actually makes sense to me. And then the private charging is over 25 times the amount of the public charging, which I think is also critical. And that doesn't really surprise me. We need a lot more available private charging and ideally the conglomerate of all three of these equals uh, utopia but uh you know it's that's that's a pipe dream maybe but the private charging is intriguing all three of these need to be attacked at once you can't just say we're going to solve public fast charging we're going to solve public destination charging um or like oh we're only going to focus on getting the right type of power and knowledge to homes uh, i do want to plug our friend tom Logney, state of charge youtube channel if you are considering a home charger, he has phenomenal content on, on all sorts of different charging, the EVSEs, electric vehicle supply, um, you know, and that's that's a great resource. But then that's very important. I think the public needs to, uh, well, I guess in this term, the private needs to know about how these chargers work and the importance of them, especially if they're looking at EVs. Fortunately, they'll get easier and easier to install. More and more companies will specialize in them. Um, but even now, if you want to install a home charger, you probably can yeah, that's um, a great point is I think the DC fast charging is such a buzz topic, you know, and, and and it's because, you know, it's public. So it is it gets the public eye. It's you know, there's a lot of innovative technology that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And there's a lot of work to do. But I think what goes to the wayside sometimes is that not everyone has to use the public fast charging while it always should be there and be reliable. Yeah, there is this large portion I mean, the majority portion that is this private charging. And yeah, great point uh, commenting about Tom Malagny. And we just did a podcast with him about safety, the safety tips that you need to know, because a lot of folks think, well, I'll just charge my EV into the charger or the wall, whatever, and make it work. But there is a lot of safety that you should consider. And, you know, don't just trust something off the bat, do educate yourself a little bit and get the proper, whether it's permitting or electrical support, or do, do the research, especially in terms of the products that you're buying to support your at-home heavy charging. So great point, Jordan. And my thought here is like, okay, so there's different kind of charging that we need to make this work. It is large scale. It's um a lot more ports than we currently have, right? And is it... Or, you know, like there's the fast charging experts that also maybe dabble in level two, but, and then the ones who dabble in, or like are very much level two or level one that dabble in DC fast charging. But are we just going to see more focused efforts from charging providers to get this out there and maybe like not, not scope creep, but keep it, you know, focused? What do you think? I think that's, that's a valid approach. Um, I think maybe early on you kind of needed like Tesla was was very good at uh, obviously the best DC fast charging network out there, but also not forgetting to um, you know provide their customers with really good EVSEs at home. Um, and so it, 
they they were man, they managed to kind of reach both those charging levels. Um, and even at home charging, it's like, well, this probably does, you know, depending on your amperage, maybe six kilowatts up to eleven or something. And their destination chargers are a bit higher, so they they took that multi-spoke um, approach, which I think was needed because. Uh, there were so few cars, but now that there's so much need for this, I think it is beneficial perhaps to have companies focused on each type of thing. Like we, we could have DC fast charging um, experts compared to level two charger experts. Um, and even, I don't know. Yeah. So that's, that's, I think a good approach now. And we have the, obviously with this study in mind, a lot more coming down the pipeline. So there's enough demand requiring people to specialize as long as they do intercommunicate in some ways. We don't want to throw out charging standards uh, and get those confusing or, or you know, if, if one company learns something critical about how a car could charge better or operate better, like share that with the auto manufacturers, share that with other companies. Like we do have to take this kind of familial approach, like just everyone stay in contact and keep talking. But at the same time, Focus on really improving something. Don't don't uh, I guess for lack of a better term, don't half-ass all these different things. You can like wholeheartedly attack one thing and then you know see see what you can do with that because we are there, there's so much um, competition that could be had, which would bring a lot of I think improvements because with no competition, sometimes there's just not an incentive to improve it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, you know that Ron Swanson quote that's. Don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing, which I feel like, yeah, you're yep. hearkening to a little bit there. And yeah, I think that's a, a true approach. I think there could be a lot of pressures, a pressure in an organization that's providing charging that's like, well, we might as well go into level two or level one. Like we can, but, you know, yeah, being able to take it, what you have and provide a really quality. And that, of course, is uh, any business. This is not new to business, right? But when we're trying to scale infrastructure like this, we do want to think about the approaches that the leaders or soon-to-be leaders are taking in this space. And I, I would be interested to see in how um, this really is being delivered to states. Like, I know it's a public resource and you can look at it, but like how I suppose the joint office is taking this when they're working with states and this is really supporting it, but I'd love to learn more about, and that's another reason to like get these researchers. And I have reached out to NREL and um, I'll hopefully be able to have some researchers onto the podcast, but to discuss really how they could see this being enacted and how, how to get it in front of folks, because a lot of charging, you know, providers, whether they're public or private charging providers, have their own data that they're working with, you know, their own markets that they want to fill up. But how much does this really uh, inform and impact the conversation and the work that's going on out there? Because sometimes there is a little bit of a disconnect between research and action. Yeah, we need to bridge those disconnects a lot better. Um, but I think everyone's kind of on the same boat in this case where we all want this imp these improvements so we are all on the same page we're all on the same team so i think that really does help this is not exactly um, controversial research everyone is like yeah how do we solve this problem so that really helps there's obviously commercial companies who are looking for oh this is a good way to profit and then there's researchers run with labs especially with ones with like government contracts or funding or um, associations where they just want to research for the betterment of humanity. And so somewhere in there is beautiful symbiotic uh, partnerships. So we'll see if, if they talk more about it. We just hope to get more of these people on the podcast. I think it's great to talk to researchers, but also people who you know run companies and run uh, divisions and companies and just 
just understand where the, where they're approaching this from, why they're approaching it. They all have their reasons. They have their business talk, I guess, but they also have the heart to do it right. That's exactly, yeah. I, I love that point, Jordan. And I appreciate you coming on and talk to me about this because I think a lot of this research can happen and then it's 81 pages. And of course they make like really interesting fact sheets where you can take it away, but to get this kind of research, you know, out to our audience, see what we think about these findings as the general public and their approach in general. And like I said before, um, this study is super interesting and something that, you know, is of an obvious impact that wasn't addressed in the study on purpose to not scope creep, you know, I'll use that word again, but how is the grid going to be able to provide enough energy to meet the to meet the demand of EV charging? And there is a lot of initiative right now to match what we're going to do, but I'm not sure exactly what that is and how we're going to find ourselves with, you know, this great load, uh, you know, demand on the utility grids and then how, what are we doing to combat this? Because I think that's also a very, you know, true naysayer point about EV evolution is sometimes we have problem with the grid on the day to day, like what we already have. So how are we really going to pivot to be able to, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty different pull on the, on the grid that wasn't there before. So yeah, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, I know we don't have the answers today, but looking forward to diving to it a little bit more, some research that we find on it. Yeah, we can just keep digging. And um, honestly, I, this is also a good time to mention, like if you have any research that you come across, uh, things that you want us to discuss or added points to this conversation, definitely throw those in the comments or um, you know, reach out to us. Uh, um, Francie, you can plug plug all the ways they can reach out to us. But we, we like to have this as a discussion, not just between me and Francie or the team at Out of Spec, but also with you guys, because within our audience is a lot of experts and we can learn from you. And we can also share that knowledge with everyone else. And I think that's pretty crucial in this moment where we're embracing a new type of transfer, transportation technology. I mean, I'm trying to imagine the, the onslaught of gas cars in more of a horse-drawn carriage society and like, oh my gosh, I don't even know. But this, this is probably the closest to that within the last uh, millennia or so. Right. And now we have podcasts. So these conversations can be, you know, I mean... Yeah. The or you know widespread uh, taken in and you have make a great point. We'd love to have experts on to talk about you know what work they're working on or what questions they're asking and how in general the the challenges that are coming along with this inevitable shift I would say to EVs is going to really be tackled. There's a lot of um, critical parts of the conversations that are also reasonable concerns that are addressed with really cool research. And then of course, the next step of putting that research into action. And yeah, like Jordan said, of course, you got the comments below, but also you can email us at podcast at outofspec.com, outofspecstudios.com and tweet at us. And of course, if you've enjoyed this video, you can easily subscribe to keep up to date with what we're talking about. And we would really appreciate that too. But thanks, Jordan, for coming on. I hope to have you on soon to talk about some other research that we can find on these really interesting topics and see what questions they leave us with. Yeah, always. Um, I can tell NREL is doing this well, and I think that's swell. And I'll see myself out after that. <laughs> Brilliant. We'll see you all next time on the Out of Spec Podcast. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.